0: Did a startup. And those the heady days like 1990, sitting in hotel foyers, sitting in Starbucks, wherever it was, meeting um, venture capitalists. Venture capitalists back A class teams with B class ideas, not the other way around.
1: Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be talking to Jonathan Black, the Director of the Career Service at Oxford University. He's been the director since 2008, but he started his academic career by studying engineering at the University of Cambridge, after which he was an apprentice engineer in a helicopter factory. He then worked for six years as a management consultant with Booz Allen Hamilton, an international blue chip firm in Europe and in California, before joining Times Mirror, a Los Angeles-based media company as strategy director. Afterwards, he moved to London to become the first finance director for an international academic text reference publisher, and then co-founded a successful medical publishing startup with two colleagues. From there, he moved to become the director of corporate affairs at the Side Business School in Oxford before taking on his current role. Jonathan is also an author, and his recent book, Where Am I Going and Can I Have a Map? was described by Baroness Gillian Shepherd as one of the most practical and comprehensible career guides ever produced. Jonathan also writes the fortnightly Dear Jonathan Cohn in the Financial Times. So, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to start, if I can, by talking to you about your, uh, your choice of course at university. You went to Cambridge University and you studied engineering. Tell us why you decided on a, a degree in engineering. My father was a professor of
0: engineering, although aeronautical engineering, and uh, I'd always been very practical. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, as simple things as Lego and Meccano, taking things to pieces, understanding how they work. So it's that sort of mechanical um, engineering end of the world. Um, I knew I wasn't a, a cut out to be a doctor, um, uh, all that. I, uh, I wasn't strong in chemistry, but I was very good in maths and physics and engineering seemed a practical way to apply those so um that's what i that's what i applied for
1: and quite often when you talk to people in the in the sort of uh the later years of their working career they reflect that they might have chosen to do something different do you ever think oh if i didn't take engineering i would have read
0: x Um, no i mean there were moments uh, choosing A levels of thinking oh should I do I'm really quite good at English should I do that uh, there wasn't a history in those days of doing sort of two plus two two art subjects and two sciences it was either and there was only three A levels then so it was either science or arts really and um, I-, I chose something that I was I was better at so I probably did better at it thinking well I could always keep up the obviously not at the same level but keep up the humanities discussions theater history english whatever as a hobby rather than the other way around um so yes i went to cambridge and did uh i don't know if it still is but the first two years was a very general engineering course everybody did the same so from fluid mechanics through thermodynamics structures maths electronics and so on and then uh, they the university had just launched a new program of production engineering, and I was one of the first 13 to volunteer for this. So not quite as academic because suddenly we were doing papers on management and operations theory and law and contracts and trade union relationships and personnel and those sorts of, and finance. Um, in a way, looking back, a sort of half MBA um, but very practical we did lots of projects in factories and uh, I think lots of people looked at us and said but you're not doing real engineering because you're not doing endless second order differential equations you're doing this thing about you know how, how do you make something so you, you look at anything and say I don't really mind about the design but how do we make it and how do we make lots of it
1: and and tell us then about how you made the step from that degree which as you say was practical into working uh, in a helicopter business. And the other thing that I'd be keen to know is that if you were advising now your younger self, would you have made that same step?
0: Okay, so I took a, um, what in those days was a thick sandwich course, which was a sort of one year between school and university, uh, like a gap year in a way, but sponsored by Westland Helicopters. So I did a year in in the factory went back every summer and then a year at the end of it. So it was a one, three, one. Um, and the year in the factory at the beginning was as a real, you were thrown in with everyone else who was 16 school leavers with a few CSEs and you were a craft apprentice. So you had to learn, I learned how to operate all the machine tools, how to, um, it's very timely. Cause when there was the silver Jubilee, I was there uh, for the queen. And I spent that week making a 1,000 washers on a lathe. And I mean, it's those sorts of character building um, jobs. Uh, so indeed, and my College at Cambridge, in the head of the, the, the um, what was the director of studies, insisted that all the students had done an industrial placement before coming. So people were at National Rail or at Shell or whatever. And, And so we'd all come with a lot more practical experience of applying engineering, and so that combination. um, uh, So what uh, you had a previous question about would I have chosen something different? I mean, the great thing about engineers and I look at them now is we know the world isn't a perfect place. Things don't fit together perfectly. There's tolerances around everything, but you still have to make the place work and you have to finish projects. You have to deliver them. 98% on a jet engine or a bridge isn't quite good enough. It has to be 100%. And you have to over-engineer things to, to make them safe and all the rest of it. So quite a practical, uh, 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 and it suited me. Would I uh, would I advise people now? Um And how do I make, well, in terms of the transition back to work, I mean, I, I had an automatic place back at uh Westerns, although other people did look at who were sponsored did look at alternatives but i went back and i was getting particularly interested in um this is when is this the uh, early 80s i was getting interested in computer systems and computer planning for big complex machine shops. i mean a, a helicopter has many complex parts which has have to operate at very high um, intensity not like a car um so i was looking at a, a designing computer systems that would do that. Um, And so I got into that and then having delivered that project thought, right, now what? So that was then the transition into the next role. Um, Would I advise people? Well, (laughs) that's a very big question about how you advise people what to do. Actually, my son went to medicine because he always was fascinated by it. Um, um, I don't know what you, I mean, you'd advise them based on doing something they enjoy. Uh, the the general advice to to, prospective university students that we talk to coming into Oxford is do the subject you enjoy. Um, The uh, attraction or beauty or feature, let's say of the British um, employment market is about 70% of the jobs do not specify the degree subject, unlike say France or Germany or the US. So yes, you can come and read modern history, and end up running the NHS. You can come and um, you know read classics and Latin and Greek and go into investment banking. Uh, so you got to do other things as well to get there. But you you so do the subject you really love because you'll probably do well at it. Um, and meanwhile, do lots of other things you know through the career service to to enhance your, your your employability skills.
1: And and tell us what it was then that made you decide to move on from from Westland to, um, uh, to Booz Allen Hamilton?
0: Well, there was a stepping stone first. So I put this computer system in at Westlands and I went to see the, I guess he was the vice president of manufacturing and said, well, you said I should do this. I did it, we've delivered it. Like, what's the reward, what's next? And he said, well, I think what you should really do, he still had an old mindset, I would say, that there wasn't really, graduate production engineers or manufacturing engineers wasn't a thing graduate aeronautical engineers we understand or design or technologists but not production it was a bit of a cinderella um, uh, specialty so your next job is is three years of jig and tool design in you know an offshoot in another part not, not around the main factory and i thought no i don't want to do that i think you know i've got this i've achieved this i want to sort of trade this achievement for the next thing and I was, uh, I answered an ad actually for um, Burroughs Computers, now Unisys, some second to IBM at the time, of um, supporting and selling systems into manufacturing companies. I mean, just to put it in perspective, as you know, uh, these are the days that, you know, if you had two megabytes of memory on your computer, that was a big deal. And I remember going to do a demonstration to a Swiss manu- uh, machine tool company. And I carried through Heathrow Airport two big one-inch sort of magnetic tapes of the program. And I got there and they read the programming off this. So it was probably about 50k of data. I mean, ludicrous nowadays, but that's all I'd carry- And that's what we did. And, it, you know, that was pretty cool. Anyway, so I did that for three years. Um, and then found that that wasn't really intellectually stimulating enough. Um, I called up my old head of department who ran the manufacturing engineering course, actually, Professor Mike Gregory back at Cambridge and said, look, I'm sort of bored doing this. Um, what can I do? And he said, "Oh, I know that Booz Allen and Hamilton are looking for people. Why don't you
1: reach out? So that was the next step. And so tell us what you did with them.
0: So that was <clears throat> Booz Allen, now um, strategy and part of PwC is a blue chip management consulting firm. I joined them in 86. I didn't know what management consulting was at all. Um, it's not, it doesn't have the same high profile as it does nowadays, for example, where it seems that many of our students want to go into a management consultancy. Um, in those days, Booz Allen were recruiting people, half the people from industry with industry experience and half the people who've done MBAs and brought a sort of theoretical experience to it. So you could marry the two and have great teams. What were we doing? Um, working in small project teams uh, with businesses like soft drinks or sugar or aerospace or uh, cars um, uh, on improving um, well improving the profits basically improving the bottom line improving the production processes i mean one of them was a big uh, petrochemical company that produced very common plastics they had six factories around europe and, and it was quite an interesting project in terms of optimizing where you made the different types of plastic in which factory, and then in each factory, it takes about three days to change from making one plastic to another. You know how you could optimize that, and we had huge luggable computers in those days. We were writing spreadsheets and whatever program models on, well, what what is now Excel, but was Lotus One Two Three, and writing these programs. Um, and, you it know, could demonstrate serious improvements. And that was, so one could have a pretty big effect, um, very fast moving. And I think that's why lots of students like consulting is it's hard work, fast moving. And, and you, you do get to visit lots of different organisations.
1: And did you spend some time in America when you were working yes, with Buzan? so I did
0: three years with Buzan in the UK. And my last project was at a, a major aircraft company in mainland Europe. And the partner who was running the project was from the San Francisco office and ran the aerospace practice for it's a us firm for the whole of the us and he said when you finish this project do you want to come and work with me in San Francisco no is not a possibility here Um, uh, my wife who's a medic she she managed to arrange a fellowship at UCSF University of California San Francisco and so yeah, we sold up our house in Bristol and moved to San Francisco. And I worked with booze for another three years, um, rarely in San Francisco. But I got to see the Pacific Northwest, the you know, New Orleans, New York, Chicago, many of the I mean places and in Canada as well. And, um, you know, great to see a, a different way of working, a different style. And even the idea that you could fly for five hours and get out of the plane and they're still using the same money and they've got the same culture is such a competitive advantage of that country compared with even Europe.
1: And you said it was different. Tell us, how, how is working in America different to working in, in the UK and Europe?
0: Okay, at a personal level, um, and of course my my lens is only on consultancy, but at a personal level, they work is clearly number one and then a distant number two is your hobbies maybe your family maybe you know what what you yeah your children when i came back to the uk many years later they're much more equal now you know again i'm talking about something that's 20 years ago so it might have changed but their work is work in europe seems to be yeah you work but you also have a family you also have children and the whole thing is much more equal so i so i noticed that that might have been a consulting element as well of course there's a big element of um presenteeism um you know i got criticized though you weren't in the office on saturday well but there was nothing happening oh but there might have been well i've got a phone you could have run me if there was an issue and i'd have like 20 minutes away Oh, that's not the point well so you know that that's where we began to sort of part company of thinking this culture's different um from what i'm used to and, and actually measuring output not input but um you know um pretty, yeah, pretty uh, it's still a fascinating place
1: and very especially the west coast very um innovative quite bureaucratic and then from um booze allen You did something completely different. You joined um, Time's Mirror.
0: I did. Okay, so that was so six years in consultancy and I had a sort of penny drop moment. I was on a plane going from one project to another because I was running at that point. I was basically an engagement manager, project manager running two projects. You couldn't fly between them in a direct flight. So you get stuck in Houston or whatever, changing planes. And and I, I was looking at my. I don't know, diary, and realising I was averaging one flight a day. And that sounds very, very exciting if you don't do it. But, and, and, um, but by doing it, you suddenly you are in the United Premier Club, the, the American whatever club, and you're thinking, hang on, the only reason I'm in these clubs is because I'm flying a lot. And I, it's Wednesday, I think it was a moment of thinking, hang on, it's Wednesday night. I should be at home, I should be my wife, I should be out with friends. This is daft, I'm away Monday to Friday. Also, uh, probably more, more professionally, I'd learned everything I wanted to learn from consultancy. It, it gradually changes from solving the intellectual problem that this particular organization's got into how you're gonna sell the next piece of work and all that client relationship work, which the partners do. And again, it didn't really interest me. So uh, now is time to leave um and as i tell the students uh, as i found no one really gives a consultant a real job to begin with because you've got no you've got lots of fantastic skills but the one thing you're missing is line management experience because you don't need it you've got so many um motivated people you're working with you don't really need to line manage them so you do a stepping stone job and that was um director of strategic planning at Times-Mirror, which is about a $4 billion multimedia company from TV stations, the LA Times, to a whole bunch of newspapers in the East Coast, to professional publishing in text, uh, medical um, and uh, academic books, uh, college textbooks, and so on. Um, And that was my first experience of information interviewing working really well. So this is originally an American term. We tell the UK people to do it which is, okay, I'm looking for a job. I've got this dead, I've got three months now to find a job. Typical man, I thought, well, my wife's working in LA by then. So she's working at USC. I need to live in LA. There are 17 million people living there at the time. I only want one job. It's gotta be possible. And so I would fly down there again, the days before the internet, the days before cell phones, So, you know, you carry a bag of quarters, you use payphones, you drive and pick up annual reports of companies, you write lots of real letters with stamps on, um, uh, and it still works. And you basically uh, get hold of people, you ring them and say, could you spare time for an information interview? I just want 10 minutes, I'm exploring my options. I met some fascinating people. I came away thinking, I don't want to work there, or I do want to work there. Um, This is great. I got introduced to people, and in the end, about a month after I'd met one person, someone rang me and said, you know, when we met, there's actually, there is a job come free now. And by the way, I've already taken up all your references because I know the guys at Booz Allen. And I've set up your meetings with the four senior vice presidents and it's like Friday afternoon. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, But I was going to choose my referees. No, No, you weren't. So I thought, oh, well, if I still get the job, then it's good. Came in and met them and um and moved to that. And that was in LA. So that was a corporate role, combining strategic planning, oversight of the whole organization, plus picking up particular individual projects. Um, so I went out to Allentown and did a project on the presses at the Allentown Morning Call, which is a you know, newspaper in that region in, in Pennsylvania. Again, great, great. I was now not a consultant, I was in the organization and you know, trying to make things happen and things change. And the whole plan there really was people like me would spend a couple of years and then move out into a proper line management role. And that's what we did. We moved back to the UK and I became, well, first of all, I was doing some more strategic planning as they expanded in the UK, but then um, uh, became appointed to the
1: as chief financial officer for their publishing company. So at this point, You've, you've been an engineer uh, in a helicopter business. You've then gone and spent six years in consulting. Then you've joined a huge group um, in media publishing, etc. Uh, and you've been strategy director and then finance director. Yep. And then, then you started a, a startup with two colleagues. And so, so you became an entrepreneur. Indeed, so we did three years at um,
0: Times Mirror International Publishing. They sold the business. Um, we then moved a bunch of us, my chief exec, my boss and I, and a few others moved over to Harcourt brace and did three more years in international publishing. And then my boss came back from the Frankfurt book fair one day and said, you know, the most interesting stands are the ones without any books. They were using, you know, internet, uh, he and I had been to one of our corporate review half yearly reviews back in Boston to say, this is what was going on. Um, And it was clear they weren't really geared up for the internet at that point. So we left, Um, three of us left. And as you say, we did a startup. And those the heady days, like 1990, sitting in hotel foyers, sitting in Starbucks, wherever it was, meeting um, venture capitalists to say, here's our pitch, here's our deck. You know, retreating after each one to think, okay, they asked these questions, better weave them in. And quickly working out that venture capitalists back A-class teams with B-class ideas, not the other way around, because they know the ideas will always change, um, but the team can't. And so thanks to some other great people and connections, we, we only had about 16 of those meetings actually, something like that. And, um, and we raised quite a lot of money, found premises in central London, recruited people we knew and people we didn't knew people and, and off we went and we created uh, an online um, medical, professional medical uh, sort of data set. So for GPs, um, uh, physiciansdecisions.com, that we then launched, uh, beta launched in uh, in New York at a conference. Um, and uh, and off we went. So, yes, entrepreneur. The Again, we, the three of us who were the co-directors, co-founders were following the classic um three people who build it sell it and count it so uh fiona the editorial director was building it tim was the chief executive selling it and i was doing the it and the finance and the operations and was counting it and and, and it worked well and what what i learned there was compared with the bureaucracy of let's say times mirror or any large organization you would have a meeting in the morning and you would do it in the afternoon and then three days later you say that didn't really work did it let's do something else and, and the speed and the
1: freedom you have is is extraordinary. Really. And so, why why obviously you sold the business, so you then <laughs> needed to do something else. Yes. And you you um you went to side business school as director of corporate. Firms.
0: Well, yes. Again, so we sold it uh, uh, to Elsevier. Elsevier and I looked at each other and I think thought this isn't going to work because you're too used to working for yourself now and you've got to work in a large organization. So I did two or three years of um, sort of interim management a day a week for lots of different startup companies from children's magazine publisher to a, a treasury system. And then uh, my wife landed a national awarded um, position in Oxford. And so we moved to Oxford and I was still doing some of that. And then um, the side Business School I started working there two days a week in corporate relations and at the time they said hang on you did did, uh, consulting well all these MBA students are interested in consulting can you come and talk to them so yeah rock up and you do that and that that job gradually became three four then five days a week Um, and then where I am now there's Well, my main job as Director of Careers for the University was this job that advertised about 15 years ago Um, and I more or less said what I've just said to you, which is, um, you know, I haven't ever been a banker or a lawyer, but I've worked with them when we did acquisitions, but I've been in engineering, consulting, uh, publishing, uh, done a startup, been a board member of arts companies and so on, so Uh, and that philosophy has carried me through the team I've built in Oxford and have inherited, which is people who've actually done the job, Um, and so I applied for the job, and I got it, and thought, well, you know, I'll do this for a few years, like my other jobs, and then move on, but it's been great, so I'm still here, Um, and indeed, two years ago, just when I thought it was getting boring, a pandemic came along, and then we had to change everything again, and now it's gone away again, now we've got to change everything again, so it's... um, it's fascinating. And here, unlike the business school, we get to work with what is now 25,000 students um, from undergraduates reading classics through to PhD students you know, doing molecular biology and everything in between. Um, and so and so you know the, the the breadth and the it is fascinating.
1: And have have things changed, Jonathan, over the last 15 years of doing the job?
0: Uh, oh yeah, well, yes. Um, so what's changed particularly is the cycle. It used to be quite seasonal. There used to be, in fact, when I arrived, we actually closed in August for two weeks and the library was then reorganized and re- And there were lots of paper clippings were brought up to date. So of course, all of that has gone, uh, which meant we could use our lovely space properly for workshops. Um, everything's online and the cycle of, it's not nearly as seasonal in employers posting jobs. Uh, it used to be a big peak in the autumn term and then it would die away. And now it is pretty much level through the year, except maybe a little dip in August and at Christmas. Uh, so th- that's two things that's changed. In other words, if students turn up and say, or even new, new, alum- uh, you know, new graduates say, oh, I haven't got a job and it's June, Well, yes, but more are coming along all the time in July and August. Employers don't want a whole swathe of new people in September. They can't absorb them. They
1: want them through the year.
0: So so those are two big things that have changed.
1: And what about um, the employers themselves? Have they changed? Do they look for different things now than they used to? Um, Well, the people we're seeing, so what's
0: changed? Um, How they recruit is, is different. I mean, clearly, uh, there's the rise of AI uh, in recruiting, uh, often unseen. So people will fill in. We're talking the big employers where they get, like Microsoft, let's say, where they get 20,000 applications for 100 jobs. And then somewhere in that pipeline, they're going to use AI to weed some weed people out. If you're, um, well, I know my colleagues at the FT had 1,000 applications. Well, they'll look through those by hand. Um, so it depends on the scale. So AI has come in. Um, Big employers tend to use, especially over the pandemic, have tend to go their own way and think, oh, we'll we'll go onto our own platform and recruit that way because we're big names. I mean, we never see the BBC or National Trust or or Oxfam recruiting at Oxford. They don't need to. What you see is the sort of next tier down. Um, uh, The way that... When we surveyed them a couple of years ago about how they recruit it's pretty much still CV, cover letter, um, interview, some sort of case study or something like that, you know, whatever they want to call it, um, that sort of thing. So quite conventional that maybe 10% are beginning to use online games, um, bursting balloons as they blow up to get the number. You have no idea what these balloons are meant to be doing or what the point of the game is. They don't even give you the rules and somehow they've worked out that this is, this is uh, an indication of something um, yeah so so bits of technology coming in the other thing of course we keep seeing i had one this morning um little software companies popping up saying you know we have the solution which is matching students or graduates or young people 18 25 whatever with employers and we can we can do all this automatically but um, uh, recently we had a law firm we were talking to who said well we're thinking of coming you know back in person do you think students want to go out for dinner um, as an example of some things we could do of really strong candidates and my reaction was yes because people recruit people I and mean, there's, there's really only one thing you're trying to do in an interview is do I want to work with you uh, and you ask a lot of questions to understand that but you know do I want you here um, so, and that's down to, it's, I mean, that bit we can't get rid of with technology, I don't think. It's going to be, it's a people business.
1: So you've talked about how the um, the careers offer has changed. You've talked about how the employer has changed. But have students changed over the last 15 years in terms of what they want from work or how they no. respond to interview?
0: Um, have they changed? Well, again, every few years we do ask them, what are you looking for in a job? Um, Okay, these are only Oxford students, but they're they're getting pretty representative. You've got 15% from below median income households and so on these days. uh, And the big uh, 65% of our graduate students are international. So it's reasonably, um, it's okay. It's not bad as representative. What do they want? Intellectual challenge is still number one and has always been. They want to be, they want to get up in the morning and do that. Um, Work-life balance is up there as number two. Um, things that are coming up a bit higher up the list over the years, but not dramatically, are uh, um, find doing a job they consider worthwhile, or that has meaning. Um, and that has come up, you know, there's a lot of talk about it, a lot of articles about it in the press, uh, especially post-pandemic, that people are searching for meaning. Um, and indeed, I've just been interviewing a lot of employers for an FT piece on how are you recruiting people differently? And so, um, so for example, Robert Neuhauser at Siemens was saying um, their, their pitch to um, computer scientists and AI people is come and do something that makes a real difference in the world. You know, it has real scanners or real traffic systems or energy control. So it's not just an app. It's something that has a real effect on real lives, on real people's lives. Um, so I think they are searching for that. But we all are. I mean, I don't think that's anything particularly new. Um, that may be articulating it a bit more, uh, but the, but no. Re- bottom line, it really hasn't changed that much. The only difference, by the way, between men and women that we've seen is men are slightly more concerned about getting higher pay, and the women are a bit more concerned, statistically, about doing a job they consider worthwhile. But aside from that, they think the same, or they mark them the same. Um, so, very bottom of the list is always my partner's plans, or is it family friendly? And I think that's a very positive sign that people realise employers are family friendly generally now.
1: And, and in my introduction, Jonathan, I mentioned your recent book, uh, "Where Am I Going and Can I Have a Map," um, which uh, the wonderful Gillian Shepherd describes as one of the most practical and comprehensive career guides ever produced. So. Um, for somebody who might be thinking now of going out to to buy a book to help them think about their career, what what would you draw out from the book that would be helpful to them? um
0: That it's it's not as complicated as you think. The whole charisma. I mean, I think there are quite a lot of people out there who like to make it complicated, but it really I don't think it is. It's if you are. Human, if you remain as a human being and you think the person on the other side is a human being and it is about a relationship, yes, you've got to have some skills. You've got there are some techniques about demonstrating um, that you're a person who takes responsibility, you achieve things and you're nice to have around. Then and you've worked out what you want to do. Um, that That's number one. Uh, number two is you're not trying to solve your entire career with the next job. It's uh, as a, uh, I think it's in the book. There's a, a Nobel Prize winner I saw on a video once who said, it's like a sailing trip that you tack from one position to another through your life. And you can look at mine, and, you know, I've done lots of different things as they come along. Um, even if you went into medicine, you do lots of different jobs along the way. Um, but as he said, the, you also have to put the sails up and leave the harbour. You can't just sit there waiting for the perfect thing to come along. And everyone does a job and they think, oh, I like that bit of it. I don't like that bit, so I'm going to find something else. So uh, that, plus, I think it mirrors what I talk to all my uh, careers advisors in Oxford about, which is the measure of success after a 20-minute one-to-one is, have you reduced people's anxiety? That you know they have got options, they've got choices, they've got things they can go and do, they've got more to use a phrase, transferable skills or employability skills, or skills that employers are looking for. Um, they've got more of those than they probably realise. They just have to sit back and think. Just got to spend a bit of time thinking about what you've got. Go and talk to people um, and, and, and 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 work that through.
1: And when you look back over your career to date, of all the things that you've done, what's given you the greatest joy?
0: Ah. Um. Well, actually, I think where I am now, and the reason for that is the people I work with. Uh, I mean, looking back, I, I did love doing the uh, six years in consulting. I was in, I had the privilege of being in lots of different organisations, but of course, there was an awful lot of travel with that. And, and so there, that was a, a mixed blessing. But the job I like best is the one I've been doing now, which is, I think, why I'm still here. And I know it's not old cliche, but it really is the people. Because we have very strong relationships and we've worked together for a long time—probably 10, 15, well, at least 10 years in most people's case—is why we were able to weather the pandemic so well. That we we were able to maintain those relationships even in this uh, artificial, sort of two-dimensional world of teams, and it's been wonderful to be back again. As we gradually recruited people, you realise you have to. You have to get back in person to rebuild that that glue and that oil between between people um so yeah it's the people but it's also a very stimulating environment it's a very supportive environment and actually contrary to what many people think um uh, Oxford University is an extraordinarily entrepreneurial environment uh, I, I I think they treat us like they treat academics which is we're not going to come and ask you could you research volcanoes? I mean, I know you're a neurologist, but could you do that? They won't do that to us either. And if we go along and say, we think this would be a great idea, we're going to pilot it. They say, well, fine, get on with it. I mean, you're, you're in the job, have a go. And you say, well, nothing's a failure. We learned something, it didn't work perfectly. Let's change it. So it, it can be a very entrepreneurial place. And, uh, and so that plus um, freedom of movement, plus great people. What more can I ask for?
1: Well, I think that's a great way to uh, to end our conversation, Jonathan. Uh, it's very clear for me to see that you are extraordinarily happy in the work that you're doing uh, and a great message for everybody listening that um, uh, the people you work with can bring uh, an awful lot of joy to, to the workplace. So thank you so much for your time and for all of your fantastic insights. Well,
0: thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.